Hey everyone, just a quick note before we begin. Unchained is doing its annual survey. Head to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2022 to tell us how you think we're doing and how we could improve, whether it be on the podcast, in the newsletter, or in our premium offering. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Again, the link is surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2022. And you can also check the show notes for the link. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the December 2nd, 2022 episode of Unchained. Unchained Daily and Unchained Premium, which includes new perks, are now on Substack. Go to unchainedcrypto.substack.com to subscribe. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA, link in the description. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Today's guest is Adam Cochran, partner at Cinemain Ventures. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me, Laura. Just a heads up, everyone, that due to some issues with our schedules, we ended up recording this on Wednesday evening rather than Thursday. So if any big news breaks tomorrow or for you yesterday, then I'll have to cover that during the recap rather than during this interview. Adam, not that long ago, you and I finished watching or watching the tweets about the DealBook interview with Sam Bankman-Fried, former CEO of FTX. What did you think? I mean, I I thought it was one of the uh, greatest works of fiction since Game of Thrones. Uh, It was this complex narrative of bullshit and lies that either Sam has convinced himself of or, um, you know, is trying to put forward to play this media game. And I'm glad to see that finally the media seems to be stepping up with some hard hitting questions rather than bizarre fluff pieces. And when you say you felt that he lied, were there any particular moments that struck you as qualifying for that kind of label? Many, Um, but like, let's break it down at the highest levels. We all know Sam is a smart guy from his background, from his work and from everything we've seen of him in this space. He is also somebody who likes control and was involved in absolutely everything that he did to a level where he became a blocker in those things. There is no way from the data that we know on chain, that it is mathematically possible to blow a $10 billion hole into FDX in a legal and legitimate way based on the assets that were there at the time. And I can't fathom for a second that someone as smart and detail-oriented and constantly in control of his domain as Sam would be entirely oblivious to that. That is the clever positioning of you know, a, a son of Stanford law professors who realizes that negligence is a much lesser crime than fraud. So are you implying, because a lot has been made, and even in this interview, a lot has been made about how it's not the greatest legal strategy for him to be talking as much as he has been. 
I don't know if you listened also to the interviews he did with Tiffany Fong, um, the Celsius creditor who sort of somehow through DMing with him, got him to do a, f- a couple phone calls with her. But Andrew Ross Sorkin asked him this during the interview, something like, what do your lawyers think of you doing these interviews or some question like that? So are, is that what you're implying that somehow this is like a strategy, what meant to throw people off or? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm of two minds of it. And, and while I'm, you know, well-read on the law as a hobby, I'm not a lawyer and I am not based in the US. So my understanding of these intricacies is probably off a little bit. A lawyer is always going to tell you, you never want to admit fault when you're under investigation, right? That is their legal strategy. It's shut up and let us do our job. I think if you were to realize you're in this position where you are absolutely cooked, there's no way you're getting out of this. The code and the blockchain are a immutable smoking gun for what you did. Then there is this idea that if you go out there and you push this I'm just an oblivious kid. I didn't know. We grew too big. We grew too fast. Oopsie. Maybe you can bring this back into the realm of negligence, which is not going to be the same as having had a specific malice intent to steal client funds. And so there's part of me that thinks that this just has to be a legal strategy that he's come up with because he believes himself to be a really smart person across all these domains and able to handle this. Because the only other option is that he was truly oblivious to all this and that stupid about a 10, you know, 20, 30 billion dollar empire. And that just doesn't reconcile with anything that we've learned about him in this industry for the past three, four years. Yeah. I mean, something I think that has stuck with me is how small the staff was. And so, you know, when you're not delegating a number of those duties out, then it does call into question how much you yourself have your hands in those items, right? Like, you know, the fact that there was no CFO is kind of um, something a number of people have called out. So it would indicate that if there's not a CFO, then it's probably someone like him, if not him exactly, who's tasked with, you know, kind of keeping the books in order. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, we, we hear this thing again and again, where they bragged about having only 12 engineers and even then they were segmented and only small parts of them ever got to see the full breadth of code. Um, they never scaled up that engineering team as far as we know, despite the challenges that they've had with the site latency that crypto Twitter completely uh, rags them on. And to co- put that into comparison, I worked at a crypto exchange in Canada in 2013 that served the Canadian market and was many orders of magnitude smaller than uh, FTX ever was, we had more than 12 employees, right? This was, this was a tiny operation back then, and we, we had more than 12 people. So it, it, at some point, it became this conscious decision of exclusion. And I'm, I'm hard-pressed to find another legitimate reason as to why, rather than not wanting to expand the circle of the scheme. Right. And, and just to make clear, I think FTX recently had um, a few hundred employees, maybe somewhere in the 300 range, but you were talking about the engineers. Yeah, exactly. Just the, just the engineering staff. I think most of their uh, staff have ended up being on customer support, operations, compliance, things like that. But they were always bragging about a really small engineering team that didn't make sense to a lot of other uh, operators in this space. So let's also now talk about some of the big ripple effects from all of this, I guess, drama and uh, this big collapse. Obviously, this week we did see BlockFi filed for bankruptcy. That was pretty much expected. 
What do you think is the significance of the bankruptcy of BlockFi? I mean, you know, BlockFi was <laughs> on the ropes in a way that we kind of expected this was going to happen, right? Um, the FTX lifeline was at best questionable, right? It, the, the deal was not good for them in any capacity. I think with BlockFi and Voyager, we once again see small retail users who don't understand DeFi get screwed over. And we see large conservative investors who wanted to get exposure to this space get absolutely destroyed. You know, Canadian pension funds in Ontario and Quebec invested in uh, FTX, Voyager, BlockFi, and Celsius because regulators here told them that holding tokens and doing on-chain DeFi was too risky to put a teacher's pension fund in. And that was, you know, four bankruptcies back to back. Those investors are gone for the next decade. There's no way we are getting them back. No, no teachers union in the world is going to keep in place the investors who want to take that gamble again. Not happening. And we've also scorned a lot of retail investors who only had a few hundred dollars to put into this space to begin with. And the pain from that will leave a bad taste in their mouth. We've done irreparable brand damage to this space in two key sectors. And it's going to take us ages to ever try and rebuild even a fraction of that. Yeah, I definitely agree here, you know, because a lot of these people were, I, I think, ones who probably didn't fully understand the products. One bit of news that's sort of been hovering and hasn't reached a conclusion is that Genesis, the crypto lender, who, which is a subsidiary of DCG, is having financial difficulty due to the fact that it had made a $2.3 billion loan to 3AC. This was obviously months ago, you know, due to, I guess, the continued <laughs> fallout and um, and you know other events, Genesis may have to file for bankruptcy. It might even pull DCG down with it. And I was curious how likely it was that you thought Genesis would actually have to file. I, I think the moment that we saw some statements from them, I became worried about both Genesis and actually Digital Currency Group at large. I don't think that contagion is done yet. I would not be surprised if we see them move to sell some major assets from their books to kind of mitigate this damage and, and hopefully shore it up enough. But we, we saw this kind of progressive rollout of them saying how much damage there was from, hey, we had no exposure to, oh, there's a gap here. And then we finally got numbers around it. I think they took a very hard hit in a hard environment. And I would not be surprised if they have to sell down a lot of their, their venture book or key assets, uh, whether that's their... Uh, Stake in Luno or Foundry or something like Coindesk, I, I, I could see them liquidating to try and get the capital to survive this. Oh, wow. Okay. So you, it seems like you are then pretty optimistic. So you, do you feel that there's a worry for DCG as well? I, I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think they have to be able to shore up the cash. And when I, when I run the numbers of kind of what valuation of assets I would give them looking outwards, I'm hard pressed for them to find enough cash if they do have to fill that billion dollar hole, just because so many things are illiquid right now. So much of their venture portfolio would be hard to sell. A lot of the liquid assets that they hold are very thin market books. So they're not going to get really good execution right now. They can probably come out swinging. I, I, I think the worst case scenario is they liquidate almost everything else and sell a bunch of equity in the parent company in order to maintain grayscale, because that's really the golden goose. Oh, wow. Okay, so in a moment, we're going to talk about what some of those moves might be. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. 
This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Join over 50 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, earn, and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 5% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions and zero annual fees. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Back to my conversation with Adam. So as you mentioned, you feel like there are certain things that DCG slash Genesis could do to keep both of them afloat. I don't know if you saw, apparently a number of people are bidding for Coindesk. There was a report by Semaphore that there was an offer of $300 million for that media company, but that was rejected as being too low. So when you talk about some of the different options on the table, do you see that as a way, a path forward for DCG? Yeah. And I think part of the challenge, obviously looking from the outside, uh, we don't have the clear picture on the status of assets on their book, uh, as well as you know, how much debt is really there because they were originally trying to raise a billion and then they kind of walked that back down to 500 million. If we're actually at that 500 million level, if they sell something like a, a coin desk, if they sell, you know, some of their venture book, uh, on a secondary market, they can probably plug a $500 million hole, not comfortably. They don't want to do it. It's forced selling for sure, but they can plug that hole to maintain grayscale. And I mean, I think they bought uh, CoinDesk for something like $600,000 back when they originally bought it. So great ROI on that individual asset, just not necessarily the time that you want to be selling it. I saw that Bloomberg reported that creditors of Genesis are working with restructuring lawyers to try to come up with options to keep the firm out of bankruptcy. What do you think of of that? Do you think that is something smart for them to do? And um, if so, you know, what do you think might happen there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think whenever possible, uh, debtors and creditors want to move towards a restructuring agreement that they can all agree on rather than going through the lengthy and arduous process of a, a Chapter 11 bankruptcy, um, which is just going to pull far more of the resources out uh, in lawyer fees and court fees and filings and make it take years, right? Like people are still waiting on their Mount Cox repayments. So who knows how many you know decades from now someone's going to get something out of FTX. I think wherever possible, a restructuring is good. It, it just really depends on the specific nature of that whole, how much debtors are owed and what they're willing to wait on, right? If, if this was happening in the bull market and uh, Grayscale was still bringing in amazing fees and these people were flush with their own cash, maybe they say, yeah, you know what? I'm fine to wait for five years for some debt equity to roll over and pay me back in Grayscale. But in this environment where cash is tighter, where this market is feeling a squeeze, where the, the larger economic picture could be moving into a downturn, people are probably going to be a little more focused on getting cash in hand as soon as possible or extracting a pound of flesh that's way more valuable elsewhere. So that, that could lead to a much messier and pricier situation for uh, Genesis. Even though you are um, optimistic for DCG, because it is um, such a stalwart of the industry and has really been a pioneer, you know, being so early in the space. I was curious if that goes under, 
what do you think the significance would be for the industry? I think it would be sad because, you know, Barry is a icon in this space and has continued to uh, be here from early on and, and take some really outsized bets in unexpected areas um, and, and champion projects that often didn't get another look from a lot of large funding opportunities in this space. And so I would hate to see them go under in that respect. But I don't know that their ripple effect will be nearly as much as what we could still see playing out with uh, FTX. I think there's actually a lot more contagion out there that's kind of being hidden behind the veil right now. And the only thing I really worry about with DCG is grayscale. And if that gets forced into liquidation or sold to a new holder that restructures kind of the trust agreements, we could see a lot of forced selling. We could see a lot of change in stance on regulation and their relationship with regulators. And I do worry that some anti-crypto regulators will use this just as more cannon fodder against the space. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I I imagine at this point, um, one of their priorities would be to keep Grayscale intact. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right that that would be a huge negative impact for the industry. And earlier when you talked about how you feel there's more contagion, what are you looking for? What are you, you know, keeping an eye on? So I, I think part of the challenge is when we look at something like Three Arrows Capital, which was somewhere between three to five billion in the hole, and a lot of it was liquid holdings that really liquidated quickly on chain. You know, we, we, we all saw the market that morning and we knew something had happened and it took us days to know what it was. Even in that case, it took about a month before we hit the new low prices because contagion unravels slowly. And I think what a lot of people in this space who haven't worked in traditional finance or or corporate America on the kind of the business development or mergers and acquisition side fail to understand is that these large corporate entities unravel very, very slowly. We're talking about a hole here somewhere between 10 and 30 plus billion dollars because we know Alameda blew a $10 billion hole in FTX. We have no idea how many times Alameda pledged that same $10 billion as collateral for other money. Right, that's still a black box for us. That's many multiple times bigger than 3AC. And a lot of this has been held by private corporations who have come out and said, hey, we had no critical exposure to that because they don't have any obligation to tell us how bad things are. And they'll quietly downsize, sell off some things, do some layoffs, do some restructuring, and try and barter their debt across different books and investment structures for a while to come. But it will pull liquidity out of the system It will create them selling downward pressure at inopportune times, and it will unravel incredibly slowly. I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to see contagion impacts of forced selling for the next six months, but just an incredibly dry market liquidity, both on VCs and market makers. Um, I think one thing that most retail consumers fail to realize right now is that nearly every exchange used to offer credit to market makers where they could trade on that credit. And as long as they settled the balance with the exchange over the next few days or with their OTC desk, that was fine. That's gone away. Most exchanges, most OTC desks are requiring pre-funding for nearly all of their clients right now. And that takes so much credit and so much liquidity out of the space. And the impact of that just causes increased volatility in every direction and leaves us so prone to other systematic events. And so... First of all, what would you say then is kind of the prognosis for crypto lending in the short term, the next, like, let's say year or two? Poor. Um, You know, I I think at the end of the day, 
we've, we've crypto lending has existed in this weird space where it is not as rigorous and analytical as the centralized lending system. And the, the kind of centralized lenders in this space are obviously not as transparent and robust as the decentralized platforms. I think Compound and Aave and things like that, great. They will continue to thrive because they were the ones that got paid back. They were the ones that users are still whole and they were still afloat because you can't cheat a blockchain. Opaque centralized lenders who got into this game trying to lend like big banks without the expertise and depth of book of big banks, those are the ones who got burned and they're going away. And that had an outsized impact on pension funds and investment funds who wanted to operate with these more traditional players. And so I think we've really scorned ourselves in the relationships we were building outside of the industry. So I think lending to that sector could be gone for years. And then earlier, you kind of talked about how you felt that there would be like low liquidity in the system in general. So what do you expect the crypto markets to look like for the next year or so? I think in part, it depends on kind of where this messy global macro continues to go. Maybe maybe we pull out this uh, Powell soft landing by the skin of our teeth and the economy recovers and we are back to this uh, jubilant up only economy and that would be nothing but good for us and the technological advances we've made during that time. I'm, I'm not as optimistic about that. And I think the reality is we will see increased volatility and increased arbitrage in this space. What really stood out to me is the uh, wrapped Bitcoin issues the other day where wrapped Bitcoin's prices were off of the index by a, a couple of percentage points. And it took almost a half hour before market makers closed that arbitrage gap, even though the assets are, as far as everyone can tell, equal to equal. Um, and that is just a, a symptom of this underlying disease of contagion that is there that we don't fully see the picture of. Because when market makers have such low liquidity and such low credit and they're waiting on transfers, they can't fill those opportunities quick. You know, a, a 4% gap between Bitcoin prices would not have existed two months ago. Um, now we can see that. And I think that's a lot scarier than people give it credit for, because if you have another black swan event or even a small event, we, we lose another big exchange or some regulation comes down the pipeline. We don't have anybody to absorb the selling. The, you know, the buyers of last resort are all on the ropes or out of the game entirely. And so I, I think we're in a, in a delicate position where those who are still deploying capital need to do so very selectively and projects in this space need to really focus on the technological milestones that get them to real profitable user adoption over this coming cycle, because we don't know when this ends and we don't know that it can't get worse. We can hope, we can hope this is that plateau, but we are on a, we're on a bit of a nice edge here and we have to be very careful where we're walking. So you cut, you alluded to regulators, but I just wanted to ask more generally at this point, what would you say are some of the lessons that you feel the industry could learn based on what's happened these last, well, I guess it's the last few weeks really, but you could even stretch it back um, a few months. I, I think the core lesson is the importance of criticism. We make this mistake time and time again in this industry. We place someone on a pedestal. We make them invaluable. We make it a crime to ask them questions to the point that we will harass and send death threats to people who are making that critique. And what happens is that those people who always want to put up that wall uh, and be infallible end up being the ones who are 
the villains of the space. They become these main characters and we find out it's all smoke and mirrors. Part of the value of the blockchain is the transparency. And we should welcome critique and criticism because that allows us to make our projects stronger. We want to have stakeholders in this space who are willing to make mistakes, learn from them, explain them in the open, get involved and iterate to make this space stronger. And if we keep on putting people on pedestals, we are only ever going to be disappointed. All right. Well, Adam, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on Unchained. Thank you very much, Laura. Pleasure to be here. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. Sam Bankman-Fried tries to win over the public. As we just discussed on the show, former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried did an interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York Times Dealbook Summit, but he was also in a number of other places this week. In response to a question of whether the funds from FTX were sent to Alameda, his trading firm, which was led by Caroline Ellison, he said that he screwed up and that he didn't knowingly commingle funds. Additionally, he said that he didn't intend to commit fraud. As was noted on the Chopping Block live stream show on Wednesday, which will be released on the podcast tomorrow, whether Bankman Fried knew what was going on or not is very important because that could determine whether he will face criminal or civil charges. Many on crypto Twitter did not believe a word of Bankman Fried's comments. Benny Lingham, general partner at Multicoin Capital, said, The SBF legal strategy is to attempt to characterize fraud as incompetence in order to stay out of jail. David Marcus, co-founder and CEO at LightSpark, said he was speechless at the level of reality distortion field at play here. However, SPF got at least one supporter. CEO of Pershing Square and billionaire Bill Ackman tweeted, he believes SPF is telling the truth, which promptly got ratioed and to which SPF responded that he deeply appreciates it. Also this week, in an audio interview with Celsius creditor Tiffany Fong, SPF dismissed the rumors of a back door, which he allegedly used to move funds from FTX to Alameda without triggering any alerts. He also addressed the value of FTT, the token of FTX, saying that it was more legit than most tokens. In a later interview with ABC News' George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America, Bankman Fried claimed again that he knew nothing about the improper use of FTX's funds and said that he didn't even try to do risk management. However, talking with New York Magazine's Jen Vietchner, SPF said he wishes he hadn't bailed out the industry and he avoided the question of how the customer's funds were lost. BlockFi sues FTX. Apart from filing for bankruptcy, BlockFi is also suing Sam Bankman-Fried over Robinhood shares that FTX pledged as collateral. Bankman-Fried held about 7.6% of Robinhood Class A common stock. According to BlockFi's first-day court bankruptcy hearing, FTX and Alameda Research owe over $1 billion to BlockFi. With Alameda owing $671 million on a now-defaulted loan, and FTX owing $355 million in frozen funds. Apple decides that users of Coinbase Wallet shall not transfer NFTs. Tech giant Apple, valued at $2.36 trillion, blocked the latest version of Coinbase Wallet until a feature that allows users to send NFTs over iOS is disabled. 
The decision has to do with Apple's policy of charging a fee of 30% for every transaction going under a mobile application in its operating system, iOS. According to Coinbase, Apple wants to collect 30% of the gas fees required to send NFTs. Coinbase was openly critical of Apple's decision. The company wrote, This is akin to Apple trying to take a cut of fees for every email that gets sent over open internet protocols. Apple has introduced new policies to protect their profits at the expense of consumer investment in NFTs and developer innovation across the crypto ecosystem. Authorities have their eyes on FTX. The implosion of FTX keeps resonating with authorities in Washington. At the New York Times Dealbook Summit, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called it the Lehman moment for crypto. In addition, during a Senate Banking Committee hearing, Senator Elizabeth Warren called FTX not much more than a handful of magic beans. Meanwhile, during the first Senate hearing on FTX, CFTC Chair Rostin Benham kept pushing for his agency to have more power to regulate the crypto industry. He said, to prevent this from happening again, we must be provided appropriate authority by Congress. As was previously announced, legislators and regulators are probing the collapse of FTX. The House Financial Services Committee announced that it will hold its first FTX hearing on December 13th, hoping to get clearer answers about the mismanagement of the company. Additionally, in a speech on Sunday, the Bahamas Attorney General Ryan Pinder said that regulators in the country are also investigating Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. Genesis is being investigated by regulators. According to Barron's, Genesis is being investigated by the Alabama Securities Commission and other states. Regulators are reportedly studying how crypto firms are connected to each other, the connection between Genesis and retail investors, and the possibility that Genesis violated securities laws. One of the most pressing issues of DCG and Genesis is Grayscale's Bitcoin Trust, or GBTC. Many were worried that amidst the liquidity crisis, Genesis was going to dump its GBTC on the market. Ryan Selkis, founder of Masari, brought some calm for GBTC shareholders, saying that it's not possible for DCG and Genesis to sell GBTC because of certain market rules that don't allow them to do so. South Korean authorities seek an arrest warrant for Terraform Labs co-founder Daniel Shin. Yonhap, a South Korean news agency, reported that the Seoul Southern District Prosecutor's Office is seeking an arrest warrant for Terraform Labs co-founder Daniel Shin. Terraform Labs is the entity behind the Terra blockchain, which collapsed in May along with its native tokens, Luna and UST. Shin, who's no relation of mine, is being accused of allegedly taking illegal profits of around $105 million through sales of Luna before Terra collapsed. In addition, the prosecutor's office issued warrants for three other Terraform Labs investors and four engineers. The news comes after a prior request to arrest Do Kwan, co-founder of the company. Wrapped tokens cause confusion amongst some crypto people. Crypto Twitter is where everything happens, and it can be a great source of information, but this week, it certainly went the other direction. Many influencers, such as Eric Wall, Anthony Sassano, and Banteg, started messing around and saying that WEF, the wrapped token of Ether, was going to DPEG and that it was insolvent. This is impossible since it's a smart contract, and barring a hack, it's easy to see at all times that the WETH contract is fully backed. While they meant it as a joke, there were many who misunderstood the message, leading to widespread confusion. Since WETH is such an important backbone of decentralized financial applications, fear spread throughout people who didn't catch the joke. On a related note, Keiko, a company that provides data and reports to institutions, published a blog post saying that wrapped assets were under scrutiny 
highlighting WBTC's discount to Bitcoin of negative 1.5% days ago. DeFi protocols respond to market conditions. While many centralized companies are suffering from their own mismanagement, decentralized entities have been taking a different approach to go through the current crisis. According to the block, volume on decentralized exchanges soared in November, increasing by 93% from the previous month. For instance, the community of DeFi protocol Aave, which has a total value locked worth $3.9 billion, decided to freeze 17 tokens on its platform that had low liquidity. The intention, according to the past proposal put forth by risk management firm Gauntlet, is to reduce the risks of the protocol. Moreover, after a governance proposal put forth also by Gauntlet, Compound Finance established a max borrow cap on 10 coins on its platform, meaning it restricted the maximum amount that can be borrowed on those tokens. Gauntlet's Paul Yale wrote, seeing how borrow caps can avoid high-risk attack vectors while sacrificing the capital efficiency and allowing for a threshold of organic borrow demand. On a related note, the community of MakerDAO passed a proposal to increase the savings rate for its stablecoin DAI from 0.01% to 1%, a 100x increase. And speaking of decentralized entities, major DeFi protocol Uniswap launched an NFT aggregator on its platform. Users can now trade NFTs across major marketplaces like OpenSea, X2Y2, Pseudoswap, Lava Labs, and LooksRare on the Uniswap platform. With the launch, Uniswap also announced it was airdropping $5 million to early users of Genie, the NFT aggregator platform that Uniswap acquired five months ago. Solana Dex Serum becomes defunct. The blockchain that appears to have suffered the most from FTX's meltdown was Solana. Serum, a decentralized exchange built on Solana, backed by Sam Bankman-Fried, said that its mainnet program has become defunct. The project depended on FTX to sign transactions and modify the code. However, community leaders are working on forking the project so that it can serve. The initiative is led by a developer named Max Mango. Three trading pairs of SRM, the native token of the exchange, were delisted from crypto exchange Binance. SRM is down 90% from its all-time highs and is trading at 23 cents. Massive layoffs keep hitting the industry. Market conditions have been tough, both inside and outside the crypto industry. This week, crypto exchange Kraken, Disclosure, a former sponsor, laid off 30% of its employees. Jesse Powell, co-founder and CEO and recent Unchained guest, said the decision was taken in order to adapt to current market conditions. Cointesk estimates that over 26,000 people lost their jobs in the industry during the course of 2021. However, 11,000 of that total corresponds to Meta. Time for fun bits. Gabriel Haynes wants to find SBF. Gabriel Haynes, who was on last week's Unchained Black Friday 2022 edition, has taken on the task of hunting down Sam Bankman-Fried in the Bahamas. During this week, he has been posting hilarious videos of his journey in the Caribbean. He shared some footage of his training for Normandy and a video of him doing push-ups as they increase investigation effectiveness, according to Gabriel. He even has challenged SPF to a duel. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Adam, the bankruptcy of BlockFi, and the situation with DCG and Genesis, check out the show notes for this episode. Every other week, Unchained hosts The Chopping Block with crypto insiders Hasib Qureshi, Tom Schmidt, Robert Leshner, and Tarun Chitra. Catch the latest episode on YouTube and on all podcast platforms. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Mark Murdoch, Matt Pilchard, Juan Aranovich, Sam Sriram, Pamela Jimdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.